Drew Balfour, the two want to brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of the podcast, making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. It may not seem relevant. Uh, it may not seem relevant to Fangraphs Audio for me to inform you that Easter Monday, which is the day after Easter, the, that Easter Monday is a public holiday in Europe or in much of Europe, definitely in France. However, it is entirely relevant uh, insofar as, for reasons that are largely opaque, uh, my internet connection works better during the week and much worse during weekends and holidays. Much worse during weekends and holidays. Because Easter Monday is a holiday, it means that uh, Dave Cameron and I were confronted with some technical difficulties. However, that did not stop the podcast from occurring. In the falls, I asked Dave Cameron about... The New York Mets' recent decision uh, to trade Ike Davis, the mystery of Brian Dozier's success, but also uh, the Oakland A's' ability to produce pitching superstars out of journeyman relievers. It's also an episode of the podcast that produces gems like this line from Dave Cameron. Yeah, I, did, I didn't understand that. Sorry. It's Fangraphs Audio features Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, and it begins right now. start okay yeah so far so good Three all right words in. yeah uh yeah i restarted my uh i power cycled my modem oh uh, that might help maybe yeah maybe uh shall we start let's start with something you just tweeted out i think which is concerns offenses okay. offenses offenses cameron yeah let, let's talk about offenses okay the fact that the marlins have the third best one of those does that say more about Yeah, the, that's unusual. Yeah, does that say more about the Marlins or more about being uh, three weeks into the baseball season? Well, a little of both. Uh, I think maybe the Marlins offense uh, was a little better than, than we might have thought. Christian Yelich in particular I think has been uh, maybe better than people expected this early. Uh, you know, he was a good prospect, but I don't think anyone expected him to be quite this good. Uh, and having an on-base guy in front of Giancarlo Stanton – Makes it harder to intentionally walk Giancarlo Stanton for one, uh, or just, you know, unintentionally, unintentional walk him. So I think having a guy like Yelich at the top of the order will help the Marlins. On the other hand, Casey McGee is, uh, doing really well, and I don't think we should expect that to continue. You know, it's interesting that you use that word protection. Obviously that, that word is typically used to refer to the player immediately after essentially your star hitter. For example, uh, when at some point in the Giants lineup, when Benito Santiago batted behind Barry Bonds, um, that was bananas. But it, it's interesting you bring up the idea of maybe protection. And, and of course, like ideas about protection have probably been overstated um, anecdotally. However, there is maybe also a, a thing that exists in terms of protecting a player by batting ahead of him. Right. I think this is something that where if you're actually looking for evidence of a – uh, a teammate influencing the production of his other teammates, which is generally what people who are trying to make an argument for the production theory are doing, is saying this player makes his own teammates better. There's much more evidence for batters ahead of uh, the hitters behind them, protecting them in the sense that, um, one, you make pitchers pitch out of the stretch, which, you know, they are generally worse at. You make the first baseman uh, play out of position, and then he has to hold the runner on the bag, opening a bigger hole on the right side of the infield, 
uh, especially for left-handed hitters who hit a lot of ground balls. This can give them uh, uh, a higher chance of getting a high BABIP uh, in those situations. Um, you have the potential distraction of a attempted runner, uh, and there's some thought that if you have a, a base-stealing threat on base that the hitter might see more fastballs. There's not a ton of evidence for that, but there's some potential for at least like pitch outs and um, you know maybe fewer breaking balls in the dirt if they're worried about a pass ball or the runner advancing. So I think on the protection side of things, there's uh, there's actually real evidence for a hitter protecting the hitters behind him, very little for a hitter protecting the hitters in front of him. You know, what is the BABIP, uh, what is the BABIP bump, which is, sounds ridiculous, but what is the BABIP increase, I should say, especially for a left-handed hitter, with the bases empty versus a runner on first base. I'm just supposed to have that memorized. No. no. <laughs> what do you think it is? If you if you had to guess. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, like uh I would imagine it's probably like 10 points or something, but that's I'm pulling that out of my rear. Well, that's good. Well, we we can um I'm sure someone an enterprising listener will look that up and feel a sort of sense of like uh, righteousness when you when they find out that you're wrong, but we could also use it as a as sort of a litmus test. Uh, to, to yeah, I think that's actually not that easy. Of a th- that's not super easy to look up, right? Like you need left-handed batter with runner on first splits. Like that, you're gonna you need, you need a database for that. That's not something you can just punch in. Yeah, someone needs to know SQL to figure it out. You think? I think yeah, and they're gonna yeah. I think Jeff Zimmerman could figure this out, or David Appleman, or, you know, like plenty of people with like, coding skills. But this is not like the average reader is just going to go pull up BABIP difference with left-handed batters with runner on first versus no one on. Does it interest you, the question, or not too much? It does, but I I, I, mean, I appreciate that you're, you think I know everything. <laughs> that was kind of a, the kind of question that is... Uh, I, I do not think I should be expected to know offhand. Here's something you should you should be expected to know is how good is Ike Davis, Dave Cameron? Uh, not that good. Okay, he's been he's hit over 30 home runs, and there was a certain point when Mets fans really ex- seemed to expect him to be about to be good. How now that I've said that, how do you? What is the? How do we marry those ideas? Um, I think. There was probably some irrational exuberance uh, in New York when Davis came up and had a, you know, a not terrible start to his career. Uh, but I think there's always been reasons to think that uh, he was going to be a limited upside player. It, you know, for one, he's not very good against left-handed pitching. Um, and he's probably, his future is most likely as a platoon guy, uh, getting, you know, 450, 500 plate appearances per year against, um, you know, predominantly right-handed pitchers not playing against lefties, which is the role he's going to have in Pittsburgh, uh, sharing time with uh, Gabby Sanchez. Um, I think with his contact rates, uh, it's difficult to be a star-level first baseman, uh, especially if you're only playing you know, 70, 75% of the games. To produce at a very high level uh, and be a, you know, a three- or four-win player, you have to be really, really good when you do play. And I think a guy like Davis, who's not making a ton of contact, even though he has, you know, some power and he draws some walks. If you're making contact at the level he does, uh, you know, it's it's hard to be a 
superstar hitter. If you don't do anything else, you don't run well, you don't, you know, field an important position, and you can't play against left-handers, you're, you're kind of limited value. No, but in a, in a platoon, in a platoon, we expect him to be, uh, to be helpful and productive, and I guess as long as he's not being paid too much, that seems like a fair role for him, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Ike Davis is upside of an average player. And, you know, I think in the right situation in Pittsburgh, if, you know, he mostly gets to face by hitting pitching and uh, they play him, you know, four or five days a week, he could probably be something like a one to two win player. Certainly not a bad deal for, you know, three million bucks and, you know, a couple of fringy prospects or whatever Pittsburgh paid to get him. Uh, but again, not necessarily anyone you should be jumping up and down about. I think to me, Ike Davis is not that dissimilar to guys like Mitch Moreland, um, who are, you know, it's fine to have them around, but not not franchise building blocks. So perhaps the the sort of notoriety that Davis has received has been more a function of the media uh, the media base or the you know the media market from which he's come, as opposed to his raw talent. Yeah, I think if Ike Davis does not play in New York, he's not seen as that different from uh, you know the Justin Smoke, Mitch Moreland kind of busted first base prospect. Uh, of a few years ago. I mean, a bunch of these guys all came up at the same time, and none of them have really turned into anything. Uh, and I think Davis belongs in that group of, you know, not completely useless platoon first baseman uh, with limited upside. There's a bunch of these guys hanging around. They're all like 27, and they're all not very good. Right, right. And, you, and as you noted, you need to hit quite a bit to make it as a first baseman in the league. Right. If, if all you do is hit uh, and you can't you know, 25% of the pitchers in baseball, when you do play, you have to be awesome. Like, you, you have to really match right-handed pitching. And Ike Davis hits right-handed pitching fine, but he doesn't match. Now, listen, here's a person who maybe does, um, who does mash, it's hard to tell, or at least matches relative to his position, and um, it's Brian Dozier. Brian, Brian Dozier. <laughs> Brian Dozier currently is, like, among the top ten in war, uh, which again, it, you know, is obviously very early in the season, but it, he was also he also hit 18 home runs last year, and I don't is is Brian Dozier this good is a is the most basic question, but also an entirely relevant one. Yeah, I mean he's not this good. I think uh, last year he had 18 home runs, but he was basically a league average hitter in doing so. Uh, this year he's like doubled his walk rate. Uh, and is hitting for even more power. He already has like five or six home runs or something. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think regression is coming, sure, but at the same time, he's kind of an interesting player in that he's not at all what you would think of when you think of a Twins middle infielder. For years, they've had these like slappy ground ball, you know, uh, Luis Castillo, Alexi Casilla type guys who, you know, don't get on base and steal bases, uh, inefficiently. Uh, Dozier's kind of like the exact opposite of that in that he's, uh, you know, a power and walks guy, or at least this year he's been a walks guy. Um, maybe a little bit more along the lines of, uh, you know, a Dan Ugla or something, uh, instead of the Alexi Casilla types that the Twins have favored. So, um, I do think, you know, he could be a quality major league second baseman. Uh, probably not going to keep, you know, being one of the best players in baseball. Have the Twins shown an ability, because I feel like especially with regard to their pitchers. They've always had, or typically have had, uh, uh, the sort which is you know now basically referred to as a Twins pitcher, which is a guy who uh, is essentially uh, allows a lot of contact, but the trade-off is that he hardly walks anybody. Have the, have the Twins shown any flexibility, though, once they do get a, a prospect of a different 
description? Have they shown the flexibility to embrace that sort of player? And I guess by extension, do you think that they will embrace Brian Dozier? Yeah, I think the twins now are not exactly the twins of the, of the past. I mean, they've, uh, you know, Terry Ryan might still be the GM, uh, but I think they've made some, uh, uh, they've noticed that they needed to make some adjustments. Whether they've made them yet or not, you know, it's a process. But I think they have identified that the types of pitchers that they've previously coveted, um, might not be as good as they had hoped. Uh, and, you know, they made a trade, you know, when they traded away to Bernard's man, they got Alex Meyer, who's not at all a classic twins pitcher. Uh, you know, I think they're trying to kind of get a little more athletic and, uh, a little more, uh, velocity. Um, and I think they are kind of maybe moving away from the 1990s, 2000 twins mold of, of low, low tools on the mound and, uh, lots of tools with little performance on the field. Um, and so I do think, you know, uh, it, Dozier is the kind of guy that they're willing to keep around now because their middle infielders haven't hit since I was like eight years old. And <laughs> Dozier is doing something that they have not seen in quite a while, like maybe since the days of Greg Gagne or something. Uh, so I think Dozier is the kind of guy that they'll keep giving chances to simply because they ha- have no other alternative. And, you know, offensive middle infield is kind of a new thing for them. Well, yeah, is that why they got rid of J.J. Hardy so quickly? Because they didn't like the idea that he might try and hit home runs? Yeah, it's like, hey, what are you doing? You should be bunting. You're a shortstop. <laughs> Um, so, oh, okay, so the Twins also have another player in Yosmil Pinto, who is notable in that, I would say, probably before midsummer last year, I had never heard of him, and then, uh, and, and beyond that, he is apparently really good at, he's apparently really good at hitting, his projections were excellent, uh, he started off the season excellently, and he is... I think you could say I, I don't necessarily know what the reports are in his defense, but obviously he has some offensive skills. Uh, this is no, this is not particularly strange for the Twins because they've had Joe Maurer for years, but because they've had two offensive catchers, uh, I think it lends itself towards a discussion that you started last week with regard. You, you sort of you talk about the era essentially that we've entered of the offensive-minded catcher. Yeah, there appear to be a lot of these guys. And I guess I guess the first thing is, and I think you speculate about this t- to some degree, is uh, is what is the reason, do you suppose, that this is starting to happen? You mentioned uh, potentially uh, sacrificing defense for offense is one possibility or sort of a rethinking of what a defensive prowess is. Maybe it's not just caught stealing percentage. Is there any other sort of thing that might explain th- the shift? I, th- I think teams have decided that perhaps they were placing too much emphasis on things that could be taught and uh, saying, okay, with what they wanted in, in catchers, they were looking for physical specimens, guys especially with arm strength and uh, footwork and guys who could really um, kind of look like a high-quality catcher, uh, a high-quality defensive catcher, uh, from a tools perspective. And I think what they've realized, uh, or, you know, this is speculation, what they, uh, it, uh, the best way to put this would be, um, what I'm theorizing that teams might be thinking now, uh, you know, without saying that this is definitely the case, because, you know, uh, this is all from the outside, uh, looking in, thinking about things, um, is that teams now are realizing that things that make good defensive catchers so I think like Jeff's piece on Jason Castro's framing is a, a great example of this. Jason Castro was considered a, a pretty good defensive catcher uh, coming out of college, 
um, you know, at Stanford, he was, uh, you know, a good thrower, um, kind of considered the, the toolsy classic, you know, I think of the top 10 pick in the first round based primarily on the fact that he was a good defensive catcher who might hit. He was also kind of terrible at framing until uh, this year, at least the first few weeks of this year. Uh, and this is a thing that the Astros have had to work with him on and, and teach him. So if you can take a guy, and obviously can't just take anyone, but if you can take a reasonably talented offensive player and you can teach him to be a good game caller, to be a good pitch framer, to work with the pitchers, to you know be smart behind the plate, uh, the fact that he can't throw and might not have the best footwork doesn't really matter all that much because these things are just not nearly of as much import as the fact that you can get a you know 100 110 wrc plus out of a guy who's also a good framer and a you know a good receiver and pitchers like throwing to him and so um, I think if teams are moving away from needing athletic skills behind the plate or at least footwork and arm strength and these kind of things that aren't really correlated to hitting uh, then you can change the profile of what a catcher might look like uh, and teach him to be good enough defensively that he's not, you know, Mike Piazza or something behind the plate. Now, here's a question, and I noticed when I was working with the steamer projections, for example, this offseason, I was, you know, looking at the steamer projections for prospects from different organizations, um, is that frequently the the hitting projections for catchers uh, were pretty optimistic, and that if you combine that with their positional adjustment, that this made them – I'm not going to say uniformly, but frequently, f- frequently it it made a you know a seemingly um, mediocre or middle of the road sort of prospect, at least by reputation. Uh, it might it, it might look like he was one of the best prospects in in his organization. So, for example, like in the Giants organization, uh, Andrew Susak, right? Who no one I don't think feels particularly strongly about, but he has offensive upside. And if he can be a reasonably decent catcher, he's going to be worth a couple wins or more every season. And I'm curious if if an increase in offense from catchers means that we have to look at the the positional adjustment that we give catchers in calculating war. Yeah, so this is one of the things that I think I mentioned at the end of the piece uh, on Friday, is that if this trend continues uh, and – catchers continue to hit like they have for the last couple of years, and this isn't just a cyclical wave, but this becomes kind of the new normal, uh, then the reality is that war is probably overrating catchers relative to other positions because the positional adjustment was based on the fact that catchers could not hit. Uh, I mean, that wasn't the, the sole adjustment, but when you look at kind of how the positional adjustments were derived, uh, at most positions it was looking at like, you know, if a shortstop moves to second base, uh, what's the defensive difference between them? If a center fielder moves to left field, what's the defensive difference between those? Uh, to try and figure out kind of a an average across all positions. We don't actually really have that for catchers. Catchers don't move all that often. So the uh, positional adjustment for catchers was based more along the ideas of this is the smallest pool of players out there. There's very few catchers, which is why they can't hit uh, in general, because you're picking from a small pool of guys who can do this. If we're now picking from a bigger pool of guys – um, then it stands to reason that the defensive gap between catchers and third basemen or catchers and first basemen or some of these guys who are now catching who might not have been catching previously, uh, the gap between them and their old position or you know what would have been their old position is not as large as it used to be because now the pools are kind of becoming a little more homogenous. And so I think that there's a 
a decent chance that within the next couple of years we're going to have to uh, reassess the, the kind of the baseline of what a replacement level catcher is. Because right now, if if this trend continues, it's probably too high. And I think when we see this in the positional power ranking, when we roll these out every spring, the worst team in baseball is projected for two war at catcher, which is league average at most positions or close to it at least. Um, and so I think uh, right now there's a you could make a pretty good argument. And I think this is um, one of these cases where you know war is imperfect. Uh, certainly we don't have defensive ca- catching on defense figured out, but even just the baseline itself is a little bit arbitrary, and I think you could say that, uh, you know, if you're going to um, adjust war to try and uh, tweak things and, and incorporate the best information, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if this is one of the tweaks is in a, you know, a couple of years when we get a little bit more data, uh, perhaps we realize we've been systematically overrating catchers as a whole. Right, but we, uh, I mean, systematically, in maybe in the most recent years, but it's based off of, of historical performance, right? Uh, the, these things are derived from, from empirical data. So at a certain point, uh, we, in a certain point, uh, catchers have been the people who can't hit. Yeah. So when I say we've been uh, overrating them, I mean over the last couple of years, like prior to 2010 or so, the positional adjustments worked just fine uh, because catchers basically couldn't hit. Uh, and so I think the question is, has the the norm in baseball shifted uh, to the point where going forward we need a new baseline? Or is this just an abnormal uh, kind of surge based on a cyclical nature of having a whole bunch of guys come up at the same time or a pretty good hitter? Is the system Jim Maurer and Brian McCann and Yadier Molina and Buster Posey, they all just happen to kind of mature at the same age? And, you know, next year, or I guess in 2014, we're not going to have Joe Maurer counting in the catcher Bin Buster Posey might move off the position in a couple of years. Brian McCann probably isn't going to be a great hitter for, for too much longer. Uh, Yadier Molina, same thing, probably going to decrease. Maybe the next wave of catchers won't hit like this wave of catchers did, and maybe it was like a, like a little blip on the radar, like, hey, for those three years, catchers could hit. Now they can't hit again. Uh, that's certainly possible. I, mean, I don't think we want to go around changing the war baseline just because there's a an offensive fluctuation here or there. But I do think that there's some reason to, to, to think that teams are maybe changing the types of players they're willing to put behind the plate. Has this happened before at any other position where we've seen something different than a wave, but a sort of total reimagination or total uh, total shift in, in, in a way a position is is used or in the way the offensive production from a certain position? I mean, we've certainly seen offensive fluctuations from positions, and I think the, the best way to look at this and, and one of the best ways to explain why we try and use the defensive difference and not the offensive difference when coming up with position adjustments is in the outfield. So generally, uh, corner outfielders hit better than center fielders because usually corner outfielders are just guys who are too big to play center field. Uh, and, it, you know, size often equates to offensive prowess. So, you, you know, often in left and right field, you have sluggers who shouldn't play center field for range reasons. So corner outfielders usually hit better than center fielders. That's not always true, and it's actually not true right now. Uh, and there was a good stretch in the, I think, the 50s and 60s uh, when center fielders were amazing. And you had, like, the Mickey Mantles and the Willie Mazes and, you know, some of the best center fielders of all time. And center fielders regularly outhit corner outfielders for an extended period of time. You wouldn't want to say that, uh, center fielders became worse defensively uh, than corner outfielders. That's basically not true on its face, as we know how players are selected. Um, and if you used the offensive difference to try and figure out 
uh, you know, to make everyone equal and you did a positional adjustment based on the offense, you'd say, okay, well, corner outfielders must be better defenders now than center fielders because center fielders are out hitting them. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you don't want to do offensive position adjustments. Um, but I think that's kind of also one of the ways we can see that there are talent fluctuations and, and these things do kind of tend to work themselves out as it's gone back for most of history as corner outfielders have out hit center fielders. But it's not always true. Uh, and it's not true right now. Center fielders are, are hitting better than left fielders and right fielders, especially this year. I think right fielders are one of the worst hitting positions in baseball. But we don't expect that to last forever. We don't. But I do think uh, we're seeing a similar kind of change in structure in the outfield where teams have moved a little bit away from the stick, you know, lumbering sluggers in the outfield and don't worry about defense and just let them hit home runs. And now you're seeing you know, super rangy center field guys uh, playing in corner positions. You're seeing guys like Brett Gardner and Carl Crawford and, um, you know, like long-term center field types playing corner outfield spots. You're seeing teams with two or three center fielders to try and maximize their defensive value. Uh, I do think that the offensive profile of the corner outfielder has gone down and the defensive profile of the corner outfielder has gone up. Uh uh, this is not a segue at all. Uh, this is a totally different thing. But I mentioned Brian Dozier as a as a. Uh, it, it, it there's some pleasure I think, uh, if if not necessarily a lot to be learned from investigating early uh, early leaders in war. You know, just to just to say, does this represent anything? Is it real or not? Uh, one one player we we mentioned Brian Dozier as one hitter, uh, who uh, who has performed ably uh, early on. Uh, a pitcher who is perhaps uh, the maybe the pitching equivalent to, to, uh, of that, um, and this you know you, you have it seems like always one every year you have one pitcher who um, I, I distinguishes himself early on, uh, but in this case it's Jesse Chavez. Uh, Jesse Chavez has pitched like a champion thus far after having made entered the season with two total starts. I think he's he's a uh, triple that that figure. Uh, is there any reason that we should have thought that Jesse Chavez was going to be an excellent pitcher heading into the season? Well, he's on the A's, and the A's are magicians who turn <laughs> crap into gold. So I think that's the primary reason. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like, to, to be able to say that you could predict that a career journeyman middle reliever was going to, uh, you know, start striking everybody out as a starter, no. There was no real way to see this coming. I do think... Uh, there's something about what the A's have done over the last couple of years that is highly remarkable. And I think this is maybe even still flying under the radar a little bit. Over the last calendar year, if you look back from whatever, uh, April 20th of April 21st of last year till today, uh, the A's have the best record in the American League. Not the Red Sox, not the defending champ, uh, the A's. The, uh, they were like 97 and 65 over the last uh, last year. Right now, I think our depth chart forecasts predict him to have the best record in baseball, or the best record in the American League, at least at the end of the season. They're 13 and 5. They're, they're amazing. Like, their, their lineup has 10 guys with a WRC plus over 100. Uh, I think what, what the A's have done with guys like Jesse Chavez and Josh Donaldson and all these guys that you just look at and be like, how could you have possibly expected this? Um, the only explanation I can come up with is black magic. <laughs> Do you think that it it should that uh, magicians should be allowed to run baseball teams? Well, I think we have one, or at least one running a baseball team, and he's been uh, there for 20 years and doing pretty well at it. So, but you don't think there should be any sort of uh, maybe the, with the next CBA they should maybe revisit the legality of that? 
I don't think that there's uh, performance enhancing magic. Uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't think this is going to become a new thing where you're like, oh well, I'm sorry, you're too good, so therefore we think you're practicing the dark arts and you're suspended. Okay. All right. Uh, well, we're clo- you're closing in on your uh, um, on your uh, weekly quota of minutes that you have to to spend with me. Um, and it should be noted, the, the listeners should know that this has been a difficult, this has been a grind. Uh, because the connection, the internet connection, has not been that good. Um, so let's uh, let's turn our attention merely to uh, to one more subject. And you're allowed to say however little or much you want about it. But you noted this, I think, via Twitter, uh, and that is that the 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 league leader in war thus far is not a surprise. Uh, it's in fact the player who's led war the last two years. And even though he's, I think he's doing it in a slightly different way. A slightly different way, uh, but it's Mike Trout again. Mike Trout leads he leads the league in WAR again, and I think this time he's doing it by uh, doing a Giancarlo Stanton impression. Uh, yeah, well, he's kind of striking out um, more than he has typically relative to how much he's walking. So it has less to do with the degree to which he's controlling yeah. the plate, and he's also not running a ton. He, he's hitting the crap out of the ball. Is yeah. basically what he's doing. He's <laughs> uh, he's if if you ever wondered like what would it look like if Chris Davis was a a uh, gold glove center fielder. This is what it would look like. It would look like Mike Trout right now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I never, I never asked that. I never thought to ask that, but, it, um, but it's, a, yeah, it's a curious thought experiment. I guess we'll continue to see if it lasts. I mean, people typically get bigger, right? They get bigger as they get older because, uh, I don't know. They're, uh, I know that I've gotten bigger as I've gotten older. Not that I wanted to. Also, I'm not an athlete. Uh, but your uh, metabolism. Yeah, stuff. I think uh, there's no question Trout's profile is going to change. I don't think he's going to ever steal 50 bases again. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, rarely stole more than 30. I think he's going to move from being a, you know, kind of a, a five-tool does everything guy to being a, you know, guy who puts up a 400 woba and, you know, a, you know, good defense in center field. I think he's going to kind of make the evolution into being. I don't know what Ken Griffey Jr. was in the mid-90s or something. Right. And that he's still going to be very good at doing that, I assume. I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. in the mid-90s was basically the best player in the American League. So nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, the Angels will take it. Uh, the Angels will take it. Yeah. All right, Cameron. Uh, this, Yeah, as I said, this has been this has been a tough podcast, but sometimes you just got you to gotta, you gotta grind through. I mean, I've, you know, the alternative is no podcast. Right. That would be terrible. That would be, yeah, people would really be upset. Well, anyways, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. (laughs) That has been uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Zestuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mostly Fangraphs Audio. 